Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, first of all, today I'm going to, uh, well, it's just an advisory. I'm going to show uh, some images which some in the audience may find offensive. Uh, these are images that have been in the news lately. Here's one. Here's another. Just to give you some context, you see. No, I'm not. I'm not scared like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Here, here's another one. Just to prove I'm not scared. Um, yes, there has been a great deal of talk about all that this week, deservedly so, in the wake of the uh, horrifying violence in Paris. And uh, one is tempted to say that um, at some point, people who do heinous things just have to be identified as such. Uh, Whatever their slogans, whatever their justifications, whether it be avenging the prophet or these people were patriots working hard and sure they made some mistakes which whichever it is you got to look at the deeds themselves and judge them accordingly i think um regarding the the question about satire and what satire does and what satire should do um it's been interesting that some people some surprising people some people in uh, both the United Kingdom and the United States, because I've been, as we say in the business, monitoring the media in both countries, that is to say, watching and listening, sitting on the couch. But monitoring sounds so active, doesn't it? It's like crack a beer. That's, it makes you sound like you're doing something. No, you're just sitting around drinking beer. I'm going to crack a brew. Anyway, I was monitoring, um, and and people have been conflating what seems to me are two very different things. One is a satirical mission, which is to mock institutions and leaders, Uh, uh, people who have some power over others, whether it be coercive or persuasive, that is to say religious or or, uh, political or religious, or educational or uh, any, any other kind of leadership position. That's the job of satire. Somehow this has gotten conflated in some people's minds with slandering entire groups of people with ancient stereotypes like uh, uh, blacks are lazy, Mexicans are lazy, Puerto Ricans are lazy. We, we, we're very quick to stereotype a lot of different types of people as lazy, strangely enough. Um, all Irish drink, Jews are money grubbers. Those are not, that's not satire. Sorry. That's, you know what that is. But uh, somehow... People cite those things and say what um, when you make fun of religious leaders or religious figures uh, who have sway over millions of people, uh, that is hate speech. I, what I cited before, that's hate speech. They're easy, it's easy to tell the difference. Really, it is. Um, as to the events themselves... We now know that the French security were following at least one of the perpetrators of uh, the killings and uh, followed him around for a while. And then uh, when he got out of jail or when he returned to France, 
they uh, kind of lost track of him. Now you're going to hear, and we already are, in the case of uh, a British official, security services in the wake of all this, demanding more powers. Got to do more. Got to have more, more, more powers, more programs, more authorities, more ability to surveil. If you, it is possible to look at the events since 9-11, where, you know, we fought and won the war on terror, remember, uh, and to see it in this phrase. At, after 9-11, people called for connecting the dots because the FBI hadn't been talking to the CIA and the CIA hadn't been talking to the thing. and they So they said, okay, connect the dots. And the security services responded by collecting millions more dots. Um, we may be in the same situation today. What we know is that, as I say, the French security services, one of them, um, stopped tracking one of the perpetrators. Now, on British Sunday Yak show, a British Sunday Yak show today, I don't think this figure was mentioned anywhere on the uh, American Sunday Yak shows, but the Brits have, have a couple, too. This figure was mentioned by a former high security official of the British government. To track one individual, to keep a constant tail on one suspected terrorist, it takes 30 humans. The French security services had uh, undergone budget cuts in recent years. But it takes 30 humans to track one person. Maybe in a tax-averse country... I don't know which one that would be. The decision was made long ago. Well, we can't afford the humans, so let's just automate it and, col- and, and automatically collect stuff on everybody. Even though it's still going to take humans to say, um, let's pull it up on this guy. When you, when you think about the right to be offended, which people are proclaiming these days, you, uh, one has to go back to something that, that used to be said all the time when people would um, claim offense at something that was broadcast or distributed widely. You don't have to watch. You don't have to read it. Turn it off. Turn away. Don't take it in. Can't offend you if you don't see it or hear it. Not this show. Please don't turn this off. Uh, this uh, Here it I'm showing this one now, but don't turn. No, don't turn this off. And um, and finally, on this subject, it, it it couldn't escape notice that the administration issued a full-throated, robust defense of Sony Pictures and the interview last month, whereas uh, its first statement on. Charlie Hebdo was a couple of years ago when uh, the paper's headquarters had been bombed, and it was a very nuanced statement defending their right to do stuff but questioning their judgment. They didn't question Sony's judgment. Commenters this week, uh, a lot of them, have flocked to uh, say that Charlie Hebdo's cartoons were tasteless and gross and deliberately provocative. I didn't hear a lot of that about the interview. So I, I'm no dummy. 
I am not Charlie. I am Sony. Hello, welcome to the show. From New Orleans, Louisiana, which I have to say, I remember when uh, we had our flood, the country that gave us the most support morally and uh, in other ways was France. Uh, just remembering from that self-same New Orleans, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. And by the way, whatever happened to Freedom Fries? Now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. This is so far outside the bubble of what we know and what we're told. You may get hypoxia from hearing it. But it's from the Guardian newspaper in London. To many Muslims, any image of the Prophet Muhammad is sacrilegious. But the ban has not always been absolute, and there is a small but rich tradition of devotional Islamic art going back more than seven centuries that does depict the Prophet. 
It began with exquisite miniatures from the 13th century, scholars say, commissioned from Muslim artists by the rich and powerful of their day. They show almost every episode of Muhammad's life, as recounted in the Quran and other texts, from birth to death. Intended as private aids to devotion and prayer, these detailed scenes were made for both Sunni and Shia worshippers. Surviving examples can be found at dozens of major museum and library collections. They also laid the foundations for a popular, if minority, tradition of devotional and inspirational images that still exists today, from icons cherished in homes to a five-story government-commissioned mural in the heart of Tehran. Many Muslims and non-Muslims have argued that Islam has always banned any representation of the Prophet, part because of warnings against idolatry. That position is rarely challenged, perhaps because the existence of images of Muhammad is little known and almost never discussed outside communities that create, study, or buy them. Their obscurity frustrates experts who see them as a rich part of Islam's artistic heritage and resent the misconception that only depictions of the Prophet, that the only depictions of the Prophet are mocking. It's really important for audiences that have never seen the pietistic images of Muhammad to make a radical distinction between the mystical and beautiful images produced over the last thousand years by and for Muslims and the offensive and sometimes pornographic images currently in the news, says the director of Islamic Studies Center at Duke University in North Carolina. Go talk to him. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast. We um, think things uh, are settled and done for, done with, over and out, and yet they live like zombies. Wait, you, you, you like zombies? Waiting to be reawakened. Uh, I don't. I don't uh, often resort to uh, zombie imagery, but it's so popular. You got to go with the kids and the thing. So here are two that we thought were dead, coming back to life. One, remember backscatter X-ray machines at the airports, the ones that gave you a nice little dose of X-rays every time you wanted to get on a plane. Uh, they they were taken away from airports. For a while, they were just stored in warehouses or in big parking lots. Now they're in use by, among others, the New York City Police Department, which has vans roaming the streets of New York City. And now a state judge has ordered the NYPD to release records on that program that uses unmarked vans with those machines to detect bombs. ProPublica has been battling for nearly three years, requesting police reports, training materials, contracts, and health and safety tests on the vans under freedom of information laws. Richard Daddario, then the NYPD's deputy commissioner of counterterrorism, told the court in 2013 that releasing the documents would hamper the department's ability to conduct operations and endanger the lives of New Yorkers. Disclosing them, he said, would permit those seeking to evade detection to conform their conduct to the times, places, and methods, so avoid NYPD's presence and are thus most likely to yield a successful attack, unquote. Supreme Court Judge Doris Ling Cohan called the new 
the, the New York Police Department's argument mere speculation and patently insufficient to outweigh the public's right to know. Heard of that? Quote, while this court is cognizant and sensitive to concerns about terrorism, nonetheless, the hallmark of our great nation is that it is a democracy with a transparent government, she wrote in her decision last month. Yeah, it's transparent. I see right through it. Nick Paolucci, a spokesman for the city's law department, said the NYPD would appeal because disclosing sensitive information would compromise public safety. The X-ray vans at issue are essentially a version of the older airport body scanners mounted on a truck. But not just any truck. The biggest. No, sorry. X-ray vans continue to be used by law enforcement agencies. In U.S. Customs and Border Protection, recently began using them at border crossings, ports, border patrol checkpoints, and special events such as the Super Bowl. Yes, you can get a dose of x-ray by going to the Super Bowl. Thank the NFL. Oh, it's a nonprofit organization. Don't bother them. And subprime loans. Remember those? We got rid of those. We solved that. Yeah, we had a little, you know, financial thing. Well, here we go again, because what they're securitizing this time are not subprime home loans, but subprime car loans. And borrowers who took out auto loans over the past year are missing payments at the highest level since the recession, fueling concerns among regulators, analysts, and some of the car industries that practices that helped boost vehicle sales to a near decade high could backfire. Credit quality is eroding now and pretty quickly, says Mark Zandi, at Moody's Analytics, more than 2.5% of car loan borrowers who took out loans in the first quarter of last year had missed at least one monthly payment by November, the highest level of early loan trouble since 2008. This comes amid an increase in subprime auto loans, raising concerns that car buyers may have taken on more debt than they can handle. More than 8% of borrowers with weak credit scores who took out loans in the first quarter of last year had missed payments by November. September, uh, of particular concerns are loans in which car dealers push financing at extended terms of six and seven years at relatively high interest rates, even if the borrowers have weak credit. The longer loan terms keep monthly payments under control and get buyers to purchase more expensive cars. And then the loans are securitized sliced and diced, and sold to investors. What could go wrong? They live, ladies and gentlemen. Backscatter x-rays and subprime loans. They live. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. Dayline Hardin County, Kentucky. No reasonable excuse exists for the horrible mistake that occurred Thursday in the News Enterprise, writes the editor. By now, many of you have heard of it. Well, of course, none of us have. The paper reported on its front page in a paraphrase statement, quote, Hardin County Sheriff John Ward said those who go into the law enforcement profession typically do it because they have a desire to shoot minorities, unquote. Sheriff Ward is not responsible for the statement. He said nothing of the sort. A retraction and apology had been printed on page one, as community members and neighbors, we feel it is important to repeat this apology again publicly to the sheriff, the entire law enforcement community, and to you, our readers. We share the outrage and disgust expressed by many of you. Internally, we 
spent yesterday researching this error, discovering the form it took and taking corrective action. As a result, the two people involved were fired. It apparently happened during the proofreading process. Yes, the pudding was in the proof. I, he didn't say that, I did. Dateline Prairie Duchenne, Wisconsin. A Prairie Duchenne school district principal has been reprimanded and suspended without pay for five days after using inappropriate language directed towards students. Inter- Bluff View Intermediate School principal Aaron Amundsen called a group of boys idiots and used the word kill to express frustration with students for not properly following directions. Amundsen has since apologized and admitted to using unprofessional language. The supervisor said it, uh, Amundsen's contract will be terminated if there are any further problems with inappropriate communications. The principal was reprimanded two years ago after sending an inappropriate email to staff, but we don't have the language of that. Dr. Ben Carson, the retired Johns Hopkins neurosurgeon, who is considering a run for president in 2016, apologized this week for lifting portions of his book, America the Beautiful, without offering credit. The apology came a day after the BuzzFeed pointed to instances in which Carson copied wholesale. Well, he he works wholesale. Sections of the book from an anti-socialism website and several conservative historians. Quote, I attempted to appropriately cite and acknowledge all sources in America the Beautiful, but inadvertently missed some. I apologize, and I am working with my editors to rectify the situation, or to situate the rectifier, Carson said in a statement distributed by his literary agent. The uh, Carson retired from Hopkins after a celebrated career in pediatric neurosurgery. Now, there's talk of a potential presidential campaign. He has said he will make a decision about whether to seek the GOP nomination by this spring. Statement he plagiarized from Jeb Bush. In December, the Discovery Channel seemed to promise viewers that they would get a glimpse of a man being swallowed whole by an anaconda in a special called Eaten Alive. But audience members were enraged when they tuned in that they didn't see a man enter the body of an anaconda as the show promotion promised, but rather just crushed a little as the snake snake wrapped around him and began to munch on his helmet. Imagine the disappointment at Christmas time. The new president of Discovery, Rich Ross, who came on after the Eaton Alive incident, apologized for the false advertising at the Television Critics Association press tour this week. He said the show had the right invention with a packaging that was misleading and went on to promise that the network, which has been more and more prone to sensationalism of late, would prioritize Authenticity. Quote, it's very important to me that when people are telling stories, they're delivering information that is true. Unquote. No eaten alive follow-up. Quote, I don't believe you'll see a person being eaten by a snake in my time at the channel, he concluded. Damn it! Well, I'm cutting the cord on the cable then. Speaking of cable, an ESPN host apologized Wednesday after one of his guests, Texas country singer and author Kinky Friedman, said Governor Chris Christie and Cowboys owner Jerry Jones are probably, quote, the most important latent homosexual relationship since Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, the host of Outside the Lines. Why do they call it that? Quickly jumped in. You don't really mean that, obviously. They both desperately want to be loved, said Friedman. Being in the owner box is not the way. His comments came in a segment about Chris Christie's out-of-state adoration of the Dallas team. Friedman, who's also known for his long-shot quirky campaigns for statewide offices in Texas, later argued Christie is an anti-Texan, thin-sock-wearing, SOB, and a Yankee. 
That's where the host cut him off. Okay, thank you, Kinky, thank you. We'd also like to apologize for the earlier comment by Friedman, said the host of Outside the Lines. Yeah, they're provocative. Deadline Tokyo. McDonald's Japan has apologized to customers and vowed to ensure product safety after objects including a tooth and plastic were found in its food. Yes, McDonald's still calls it food. The latest trouble for the chain hit by sliding sales and a shortage of French fries. The Japanese chain, almost half-owned by the mother McDonald's, has been grappling with falling sales that began long before the food safety scandal last summer hit confidence in its product. The company is still on track to record sixth straight year of decline. Wednesday's apology came after a diner found a roughly one-and-a-half-inch strip of vinyl in a Chicken McNugget. That prompted the chain to halt sales of nuggets made on the same day as the contaminated item in Thailand. The company is still investigating the cause. Among other incidents, a human tooth was found in a customer's French fry in August. A child in December cut his mouth on a piece of plastic that was in a chocolate sundae. I'm confident that my family can eat McDonald's products, said Takehiko Aoki, senior vice president. I think our response has been appropriate, he said, when asked whether the company had been slow to announce its findings. McDonald's Japan only started sourcing nuggets from three Thai plants less than six months ago. The change was aimed at boosting confidence in product quality after a Chinese supplier was accused of selling expired meat. Well, they were thinly staffed. The Thai plant that produced the nugget found to contain vinyl is located in Saraburi in Thailand, owned by Cargill. Cargill, Thailand, didn't apologize yet. Had no comment yet. Cargill. Well, you know, sometimes vinyl and food doesn't really hurt you. Deadline Columbus, Ohio, a central Ohio art museum has apologized after a visitor examining a Lego model of Columbus noticed it included a Lego figure with a gun pointing at the front door of the model police station. I blame Lego. It wasn't part of the design for the exhibit at the Columbus Museum of Art. It upset the Columbus firefighter who spotted it a week after the two New York policemen were gunned down in their patrol car. The museum and the club that designed the exhibit said the gunman figure would be immediately removed. It's not clear how the figure got there. Museum spokeswoman told the Columbus Dispatch it's possible the figure came from an area near the exhibit where visitors can create their own Lego structures. Yeah, those user-made Legos can be dangerous. Ask, ask my lawyer. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now um, let us try. Let us try, of course, the slogan of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Doing so much to help the United States Army Corps of Engineers. And um, this week's items start uh, with uh, this from Tennessee. Gaylord Entertainment Company, which owns Opryland and uh, the Grand Ole Opry, uh, has been trying to get $250 million in damages that uh, restored Damages it incurred from the 2010 Nashville flood when the Cumberland River came flooding into Nashville. The uh, case is looking bleak after the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the uh, primary ruling of uh, 
the federal court. Gaylord sued the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers over damage to its hotel and convention center in the Grand Old Opry House after the floodwaters topped levees surrounding their property in May five years ago. The hotel was evacuated and closed for several months for renovations. Waters damaged the famous theater where the Opry is held. Two years ago, a U.S. district judge dismissed three lawsuits that accused the Corps of negligence during the disaster, ruling the government has total legal immunity under the 1928 Flood Control Act. That's the same immunity that protected the Corps from lawsuits following the 2005 New Orleans flood that killed more than 2,000 people. The suits argued that the Corps and the National Weather Service acted negligently and inadequately communicated with each other before and during the storm. The Corps allegedly According to the suits, waited too long to release water from Old Hickory Dam when the Weather Service issued inaccurate river stage forecasts. Gaylord has filed an appeal. That old immunity biting us at back, it's just a law. It could be repealed. But a $57 million military base paid for by the U.S. Defense Department for use by Afghan commandos has gone over budget by several million dollars, is plagued with broken generators, and will require an additional $3 million to be finished according to the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. In its report this week on Camp Commando in Kabul, the U.S. Inspector General cited inspections of the base in February and November last year that found a litany of problems. The DOD established the camp to house the Afghan Army's Special Operations Headquarters, as well as a commando school, a military intelligence unit. The report focused on the camp's power plant, and that would be basic, fuel pump and dining facility. Found problems with all of them. Quote, we found that all three facilities generally appeared to be well constructed, but a complete inspection was not possible because neither the power plant nor the fuel point were fully operating, said the inspector general. Despite deficiencies in the facilities being unresolved, the contractors, Afghan and American, were paid in full. Only one of the four primary generators could operate at at a time because of a software synchronization issue. Because the system couldn't automatically switch from one generator to the next, it had to be done manually, that is to say once a year, wasting time and resources. The Corps of Engineers said it agreed with the Inspector General's findings, but that none of the shortfalls warranted disciplinary action. Why should it? It never is against the Corps. It blamed the power problems on Afghan troops, saying that about two years ago, someone in the Afghan army damaged the transformers by improperly connecting them. What can you expect from these people? Instead of trying to fix the transformers, the camp used 19 generators to compensate for the drop in electricity. But even this was met with problems, as some of the generators needed repairs. Site inspectors confirmed that fuel pumps were not operating and had not been tested and commissioned. Because of that, it said the Army Corps has not been able to check the systems for deficiencies, including whether there were leaks or problems with the pump nozzle system. The Corps insisted the fuel pumps had been tested and commissioned, but it did not provide supporting evidence. It said the pumps had never been programmed, so they could not be used to pump fuel. These were, just to reiterate, fuel pumps. Let us try, ladies and gentlemen. The motto of the United States Army, Corps of Engineers. And a belated goodbye to Joe Cocker.
From New Orleans, this is the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, he's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Mm, guess something. Uh, news of Inspector General. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York's oversight of J.P. Morgan Chase's office, responsible for the $6.2 billion trading loss of, attributed to the so-called London Whale trading program, so-called because it was so big, was marked by, quote, turf battles and a tense relationship with another agency, according to the Federal Reserve Bank's Office of Inspector General. They found a lack of cooperation between the New York Fed and the Office of the Controller of the Comptroller of the Currency and their supervision of J.P. Morgan's Chief Investment Office, the CIO, in one instance, New York Fed examiners tried to join an OCC investigation of the chief investment office and were denied, according to the report. Members of the New York Fed supervisory staff said the OCC was territorial about its role as the primary regulator. One indicated the leaders of both supervisory teams didn't cooperate, said the report. This follows the inspector general's release a couple months ago of a four-page summary. In response letter... The Fed's Director of Banking Supervision and Regulation said resource challenges faced by the central bank and the New York Fed cannot be underestimated. The Fed system may need additional supervisory personnel. The Inspector General said the Fed was wrong to criticize examiners for failing, failing to prioritize exams of J.P. Morgan's chief investment office. The Office of the Comptroller, Comptroller of the Currency, tagged by Eve Smith, you've heard her on this broadcast several times, as a lapdog of the banking industry, not a watchdog. Deadline Tallahassee, while Floridians celebrated New Year's Eve, the new U.S. Department of Homeland Security slipped a last-minute firecracker of a press release in which it acknowledged massive government waste by one of its most stigmatized federal agencies. FEMA appears to have overfunded its Florida Public Assistance Grant Program by $177 million, according to the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General. The taxpayer loss stems from the two-year period 2004 and 2005 when the state was hit with seven hurricanes and two tropical storms. The public assistance program is FEMA's primary way to deliver financial aid. FEMA paid for property damages that should have been covered by private insurance in addition to sometimes paying on top of private insurance reimbursements, effectively duplicating recovery benefits. It's not just Louisiana. 
And after Customs and Border Protection spent hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars over eight years on its drone initiative, it has yet to prove the value of its unmanned aircraft system while drastically understating the costs. Nor can Customs and Border Protection demonstrate how much of the program has has improved border security. That's the conclusion of the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General. The report, called Customs and Border Protection's Unmanned Aircraft System Program Does Not Achieve Intended Results or Recognize All Costs of Operations, is the IG's second audit of the program in the last couple of years, found the effort still has no reliable method of measuring its performance and that its impact on stemming illegal immigration has been minimal. The IG recommended CP, CBP actually abandoned plans to spend $443 million, almost half a billion more, on additional drones and, quote, put these funds to better use. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, news of APAC! We've not, for very good reason, been paying much attention to Afghanistan this week. But there is stuff worth noting. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani, the new president, marked his first 100 days in power this week. Break out the champagne. Still struggling to form a government, you see. As a new political stalemate threatens to fuel the Taliban insurgency. The deadlock over senior cabinet positions has underlined the challenges of running a unity government. That was uh, an agreement brokered by Secretary of State John Kerry, which had the two candidates for president, Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah, agree to share power after the uh, election was mired by fraud and disputed results. The deal was seen as saving Afghanistan from the risk of imminent civil war, but it was soon bogged down in disagreements over which side loyalists would take key posts such as interior and defense. Ghani has repeatedly missed his own deadlines on forming a government, asking Afghans to show patience. Yeah, that'll do it. The political vacuum comes at a sensitive time as Taliban insurgents push to exploit the end of NATO's combat mission. The Taliban this week mocked Ghani and Abdullah for making fools of themselves over the cabinet delay. They will say it's because the weather is too cold. They need more time until it gets warmer, said the Taliban, adopting a mocking tone. The delay has emboldened the enemy to step up attacks, political analyst Mia Goul Wasik told Agence France Presse. President Ghani, meanwhile, invited the Taliban to join in the peace process backed by the international community. Speaking in Beijing, Ghani made no, no specific proposals. But he has, according to the diplomat.com, promised to announce a cabinet within a week. A source close to Ghani said the government should be drawn not just from the two teams, but from all parties in Afghanistan. Ghani's team offered the Taliban three cabinet positions. Three individuals were offered positions in the Ghani cabinet, including a close relative of warlord Gulbuddin Hek Matyar. The posts were the Ministry of Rural Affairs, the Ministry of Hajj, and and Religious Affairs. He also considered appointing Taliban governors to three southern provinces, including Helmand, where the Brits used to uh, run things. So they thought. While the Afghan government has not yet commented on the news, sources close to the Taliban indicate the Taliban turned down the offer because of the signing of security arrangements which would allow American and other foreign soldiers to remain in Afghanistan. That, of course, was an agreement 
Former President Karzai wouldn't sign, but new President Ghani quickly did. Other Taliban demands for joining the government include immunity from prosecution, just like the U.S. demands when our troops are in Afghanistan or Iraq. Any move by the Taliban to join the government, of course, would have been controversial. Or so it seems here. How does it seem there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, now asking for our tote bags and mugs back. We need them more than you do. From the abandoned television production truck in downtown Kabul, home of Afghanistan's only digital billboard, <laughs> I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Tick and Talk. The time's up, brothers. Welcome to another edition of Cars I Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Afghan League of Voters who can prove they're not women. <laughs> <laughs> well, my younger brother, our new president, Mr. Ghani, has passed the first hundred days of his administration, mm -hmm. and he's already kept one important promise. Oh, wait, my brother. He hasn't even got a cabinet yet. How is that possible? Exactly. He promised an end to corruption, mm -hmm. and without a cabinet, there's nobody to corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a caretaker government. Mm -hmm. You could always bribe the caretakers. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love my brother. He always sees the other side. Or at least the other angle. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Hello, this is uh, John. A short time Secretary of State, uh, second time caller. Oh, Mr. Secretary, it's so good to talk to you. Well, Where you. have you made peace this week? <laughs> well, uh, of course, we've uh, applied new sanctions to our Russian friends mm -hmm. in the uh, hope of stemming their aggressive actions toward their Ukrainian neighbor. Mm -hmm. We're very gently proceeding along the negotiating track with our Iranian friends regarding their nuclear program, mm -hmm. and uh, and we're helping to build a moderate rebel response to both the Syrian government and to IS in uh, Syria. So the answer is nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, my brother is being unfair, of course. I understand. Just as uh, when he told our mother that I had oh. drowned his kitten. Oh. That's terrible. Oh. Uh, did you drown his kitten? <laughs> Don't be silly, Mr. Secretary. We couldn't afford real pets. It was a cardboard kitten. <laughs> oh. So it, it, it couldn't swim anyway. Oh, you don't have to rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, look, fellas, I, I know that lame banter is part of the format, but so is a question, and I, I actually have one. Oh, excellent. That is so important for our grant applications. Y your, your network gets grants? Oh, yes. From the Afghanistan Endowment for the Humanities. They have promised us a grant just as soon as somebody gives them an endowment. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, my, my question is simply this. Mm -hmm. I, I was over there, as you know, in your lovely country for uh, a while, five or six months ago, mm -hmm. hammering out a power-sharing agreement between uh, your two presidential candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, that was supposed to end the stalemate and speed the way towards uh, forming a new government uh, that your people had voted for. And your question? <laughs> well, what happened? I think uh, my question is, if you were in a lovely country, as you said, mm -hmm. 
What does that have to do with us? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Secretary, mm -hmm. maybe I can make an automotive analogy in tribute to my younger brother's struggling Toyota dealership. Oh, I'm, I'm a big fan of product placement. Go ahead. Just because you change the oil in a Tundra, mm -hmm. if the crankshaft is broken, you haven't improved the vehicle's ability to run. No, 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 no. The Tundra is so good it can run without a crankshaft. Mahmoud, you're not in the showroom. You're in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're right. Yes, <laughs> My friends, Mr. Khani and Mr. Abdullah. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be Abdullah, Abdullah? Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> they seemed uh, to you, Americans, like the answer to your prayers of getting rid of a difficult person such as, for example, myself. Well, we had had our disagreements with you over, uh, for example, uh, getting the deal signed to let our troops stay there. So, before, you had the government and no agreement. Mm -hmm. Now you have an agreement and no government. <laughs> <laughs> now they have a crankshaft and no tundra. <laughs> no, no, we still have some tundra, although climate change is... Mr. Secretary, maybe now you understand what it takes to run a nation like Afghanistan. It takes a public radio show? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. Uh, no disrespect, mm. but I wouldn't trust him to get a power-sharing agreement between a battery and a wall socket. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, mm. but I'm an Afghan. What's a wall socket? <laughs> <laughs> What's a wall? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Hello, this is Talibullah, mm. long-time insurgent, first-time caller. Uh, caller, can I deduce from your name that you're a member of the Taliban? Well, member is a little strong. <laughs> uh, I miss a lot of the meetings, uh -oh. and I... I think I'm behind in my dues, but I like the guys, sure. Were you by any chance among the Taliban members invited to join the cabinet by new President Ghani? No, I wasn't, and that ticks me off just a little bit. Really? Yes. I think I could have been a first-rate culture minister. Mm. I'm up on all the hip-hop from Tone Lock to JC. Mm -hmm. I've seen every episode of Family Guy, mm. and I'm very deep into manga. Oh, and as culture minister, mm. you'd encourage those forms of expression? Oh, no, 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 no. As a representative of the Taliban, I'd do my best to wipe them out, but I'd know just where to find them. But uh, <laughs> none of that material is actually produced here. I know. It'll be a pretty easy job. That's why I'm ticked off. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a question? Well, I was hoping you had President Ghani's phone number. He, he got your old one, right? No, no, no. He had it changed. Took him two weeks to do it. To get the truck out of the palace? No, to think up a new number. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. We had help today from the Organization of Failed States, building a better world through chaos. Legal services for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Nukum. I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. Join us again for another edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio.
Now, ladies and gentlemen, what the frack? The plunge in oil prices is suddenly introducing Wisconsin to the boom and bust nature of the global energy business. Wisconsin is the nation's leading producer of sand used in hydraulic fracking, frack sand. Motorists are now enjoying low gasoline prices, but the drop in oil prices has Wisconsin's frack sand industry bracing for a slowdown as drillers cut back on production. According to Rick Shearer, CEO of Emerge Energy Services. We certainly expect things will be softer in 2015 than they were last year. Rick. Brother Rick, give me some shares while it's soft. British Columbia shale gas fracking industry triggered more than 231 earthquakes or seismic events in northeastern British Columbia between August 2013 and October of last year. Some of the quakes were severe enough to experience a few seconds of shaking on the ground in seven areas of the province, British Columbia, Canada, on top of a large shale gas basin. The events, many of which occurred in clusters or swarms, showed that the regulation of the industry still lags behind the pace of oil drilling activity or gas drilling activity in the region. Induced seismicity related to wastewater disposal and hydraulic fracking indicates a more uniform application of regulations is appropriate, says the British Columbia Oil and Gas Commission. The report states 38 tremors were caused by the injection of wastewater produced by fracking. Another 193 events were directly attributed to hydraulic fracking. And Dateline Columbus, Ohio, some environmentalists and energy observers say they're not surprised by a new study that connects earthquakes to hydraulic fracturing in Ohio. Dozens of quakes occurred March of last year in Mahoning County, including a magnitude 3 quake. The study from Miami University of Ohio concluded the tremors were spurred by fracking activity. 
Maybe they were in a no Mahoning zone. What the frack? Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Too much information file. When Pope Francis visits the Philippines next week, according to the Associated Press, traffic enforcers won't let the capital's streets get gridlocked if they have to answer the call of nature. 2,000 traffic enforcers who will be on duty during the papal visit will be required to wear adult diapers. Yes, they're pampering the police. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave. Around the world via the Internet at two different locations. Live and archived whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available on the Mighty 104 in Berlin. On your smartphone through stitcher.com. And as a free podcast, we come to you on Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, and uh, several more. Check it out. It's free wherever you get it. And it'd be just like us all being Sony, if you would agree to join with me then. Would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh huh. Show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program. Hey, join the conversation. Yell at your radio. The email address for this program and the playlist of the music heard here on and Cars I Talk t-shirts, all available at harryshare.com. And if you really want to talk back to this program, I'm on I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. Join the conversation, won't you? The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change Is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.